3D printing technology is pushing the limits of customization, bringing ease to surgical planning and making predictable outcomes. If you are a surgeon wanting to make lives better, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Surgeons in 3D Printing podcast. And now, your host, Dr. Ruchi Pathak-Cole, to take you on this beautiful journey. Welcome to the Surgeons in 3D Printing podcast today. I have a very special guest from the Mayo Clinic, United States of America. It is such a pleasure and honor to have Dr. Jonathan Morris with me on this platform. Dr. Morris is a neuroradiologist with emphasis on minimal invasive spine procedures. He's the director of the Mayo Clinic in-hospital 3D printing lab, anatomic modeling lab. He has been bestowed with numerous awards and research publications. But before we begin this conversation, I would like to congratulate Dr. Morris for his latest SME Manufacturing Industry Achievement Award 2020. Welcome, Dr. Morris. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for allowing me to talk about this. Yes, Dr. Morris, uh, your journey has been very long and interesting. I would like to ask you, what were you intrigued with when you started with 3D, uh, 3D printing? Well, I started 3D printing when I was at uh, NIH in the Office of High Performance Computing, which is in Bethesda, Maryland. So I was going to medical school, which is a second career for me. And um, I was working in the Department of Neurosurgery at NIH and then I switched to do a mini fellowship in the Office of High Performance Computing and 3D printing was introduced to me by Dr. Terry Yu and Dr. Uh, David Chen, who are PhD imaging scientists there. And there was a 3D printer in Bethesda Navy Hospital, which was across the street. And back then you could go freely back and forth between, uh, between the two sites. So I was, I was immediately enamored with the technology and um, the first thing we worked on was pedicle screw trajectory guides for placing screws inside of the um, spine. And, you know, the rest is kind of history, as they would say. But that was my first exposure, first project, you know. Right. Wow. And so uh, how did you then build your team around 3D printing? So I came to, I'm a, I'm a radiologist, so I'm a neuroradiologist, and I trained at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, which is kind of in the middle of the country. And um, when I came to Mayo Clinic, I was doing diagnostic radiology residency. Right. And in that time, Dr. Jane Matsumoto, who is a pediatric radiologist, uh, was working on a case of a complex conjoined twins, and the surgeons had asked her if they could construct a model because um, Dr. Matsumoto at the time was really one of the few people who understood the complex anatomic relationships between the two girls that were joined at the abdomen and the liver and shared vasculature and, and bile duct anatomy. Um, and we have a long history of medical illustration animation at Mayo Clinic and we have a long history of creating what are called wax moulages, which are these you know carved wax models of different right. pathologies yeah. Um, some of the surgeons remembered those and said, you think it's possible to make one of those? And Dr. Matsumoto said, well, why don't um, they ask, can you 3D print one? And she said, like most radiologists, sure, we'll try and do that. And then worked with the Department of Engineering and came up with the first print at Mayo Clinic, which was a liver for these girls that were joined at the abdomen. And 
um, wow. became, um, you know, a central focus of, of the case sometimes where they would look at it, study it, talk about what they were going to do, rehearse things. So that was about uh, 16, 16, almost 17 years ago now. And then after that time, another set of conjoined twins came and we did the same thing with their chest wall and they planned spaces under the skin and then it kind of kept going from there. Then our spine surgeon saw some of the models at the spine and he does pediatric congenital scoliosis work and asked us if we could print some pediatric scoliosis cases for him, the more complex ones that are difficult to understand and difficult to fix. And we were working with Joel Coleman in the Department of Engineering who um, they would let us use their printer, they loaned us an engineer, and it was, it was great because we were helping patients using this technology and the surgeons kept coming back and saying how helpful it was, which is really why we kept expanding. You know, we didn't set out to build a massive manufacturing plant in a hospital. We set out to help patients and we quickly found out that this was one more tool that really experienced surgeons could use to better their outcomes. Um, right. So that was kind of the very beginning. Wow. So how did, uh, what do you think are the basic systems which are needed to kind of set up before one can start with a point of care center? So uh, you need a few things. You need a local champion who believes in it, somebody who actually wants this to happen for patient care um, where they're at, which they should. Um, two, you need some sort of software. There's all sorts of software. In the U.S., we've tried to build an ecosystem where we think you should use FDA-approved software for diagnostic models. Right. That, that means that um, there's no scaling issues, there's no mirroring issues, there's, they've gone through an FDA approval process that says their software does exactly what their software says it does. Now, there are plenty of people that use freeware, there are plenty of people that use Blender, yes, FreeSurfer, exactly. local yeah. homegrown solutions. And I think that's fine, um, depending on where you are in the world and the resources you have, as long as you validate your system, as long as you have some sort of quality control system that says, I took this CT scan with these measurements, made this model in a CAD software and printed that object. And you have a way to test that on both the 3D CAD model by putting it back on the 2D uh, data, as well as having some sort of measurement system for the model you print, because there's so many errors that can happen along the way. Scaling issues, mirroring issues, right. uh, CAD issues, fixing issues, and the printers don't always work. You know, um, it's like any piece of technology. You have to assure that the print is working in the way that you want it to work so that the object you're getting out of it is actually accurate. So there's freeware software you can use, but you should validate it. And in the US, we think you should use FDA approved software in the hospital setting. Um, but that's not true for around the world, particularly places that have limited resources. So local champion, someone with desire, someone with anatomic and radiographic data um, knowledge, which is usually a radiologist, but it could be a surgeon who's really savvy with imaging. Uh, and then you need a printer of some sort. So, I mean, you could start with a prosumer, form labs, Ultimaker, some sort of, uh, you know, FDM printer where you're at the prosumer cost. Uh, and, and each time you go down from that, you drop down in quality. So if you want a couple hundred dollar, $300, $400 printer, well, that's what you're going to get for results. You might be able to fine tune it. You might have to be able to get it to work, but it, you know, we need it to be able to work all the time, every time. 
thousands of times because um, we run the printers 24 seven. So uh, you need, those are kind of the basic building blocks that you need to get started. So like, uh, when do you think, how did you kind of, now you have polyjet based printers and all of the other stuff. So how were you able to get that through research funds or is it through like the patient or you charge the patient? Is it through, the, what is the There's portal? There's a lot of different ways to go about it. So there's several ways to start. Um, one is to roll it into your clinical budget. So if you're a larger institution and you have different departments, like we're in the department of radiology, it's part of the radiologist budget. And you know, you could start with a small amount of software, a small printer, and it's a very small part of your overall budget. Right. And if you have people willing to work on it, then, you know, it's not that costly, uh, particularly if you're printing single material, one color models with like say SLA or FDM. Uh, as you expand that though, you know, it's a real true cost. So, there's several ways to look at it. One, you could print objects that either allow you to do a surgery that you haven't been able to do before um, because you don't have the particular understanding of uh, a particular anatomy and, and people are doing that. Like for example, in Western India, they were, we've had visitors from Kochi, I think I'm saying that right. Yes. Where they've used FDM printers you know, for congenital hearts and allow yeah. their surgeons to understand the heart in a way where the surgeon exactly. would then take on the case. Yes. So by able, being able to take on the case, you know, there's a monetary benefit from that either from state insurance companies or patient um, provided pay. There are groups that do charge patients for models. So you can print models for patients for, for a fee. Uh, there are groups that do that, particularly in different um, Asian countries. I know one radiologist that told me he was doing that in Delhi, um, but then you have to, you know, it has to be cost effective. You, you're using some, some kind of like form labs, Ultimakers, some prosumer printers. Exactly. Relatively good cost models. The other way to do it is combine it with surgical care. So depending how much it costs to run an OR, so you do cranium axofacial surgery. So a right. two-person fibula free flap with a mandible reconstruction can take hours. Exactly. Um, you can 3D print patient-specific guides that can reduce your OR time by an hour and a half to two hours. Well, then that you look at the cost of the OR per hour versus how much the guide costs. Exactly. So we make a lot of calculations like that where we say, well, like before we had reimbursement codes, we'd say, well, the guide costs this much to manufacture. However, our ORs are 80 to $100 a minute at Mayo Clinic. Um, so if we save 90 minutes, that's a significant cost saving to where the guy doesn't even factor exactly. into the cost because it's exactly. such a saving. And we can do another case that day in that room because we saved two hours over yes. three cases. Um, so there's that way to look at it. And then um, another way to look at it is in the United States, we got category three codes reimbursed by the AMA. So now we have billing codes for 3D printed models and custom osteotomy guides. Category three codes are not RVU based. They're, um, they're made for planning, but we're using them to bill because now we have codes that we can build to. So yeah. there's several ways to look at it. Big picture, yes. saving time in the OR, billing Very the true. patient, billing an insurance company, state provided healthcare, um, organizations and, and it's different different countries different ways so right. um, and it's not 
it's not like you're 3D printing for everything. So you need to come up with clinical appropriateness criteria for which cases you're going to do this in. So we yeah. don't do 3D printing for every cranial maxillofacial case. We do them for complex oncologic reconstructions, mid-face advancements, um, where we're resecting, you know, complex frontal sinus tumors, skull-based tumors, uh, not yes. every case. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think is a good team? Like, what is the role of a surgeon? And what is a good team built around 3D printing? What are the components of a team? So I can tell you the way that we've built it. Um, but that doesn't mean it's the only way to build it. Okay. So we've housed in the Department of Radiology because 85 to 90% of all Mayo Clinic patients go through radiology. Um, we have 250 radiologists and they're all subspecialists. So we can have a centralized 3D printing hub that serves everybody. And in that way, it's cost effective, it's efficient, it's busy, and we can take innovations from one specialty, say like craniomaxofacial and orthopedics and go right into plastic surgery because there's overlapping themes. That's different if cardiology buys the printer and cardiology has a budget and cardiology has a research center and it's cardiologist printer, and if you want to use it, you have to give them your research PAU number or budget number or whatever. Exactly. Well, that printer generally sits there doing nothing most of the time. Yeah. So for us, we feel strongly about centralized 3D printing hubs. It could be in a surgical subspecialty, but the fact that who's ever running it realizes it's a central resource for the hospital. And the hospital leadership realizes it's a, a central resource for the hospital and finances as, as such so that it serves every surgical subspecialty at once and you're not reinventing the wheel every time someone buys a printer. Exactly. And then two, uh, you can provide quality control metrics. So we have uh, 3D printed coupons. We have month, weekly phantoms, monthly phantoms, quarterly phantoms, yearly phantoms. We have a whole quality control process that we have an install quality control, we have performance quality control, we have operating quality control. And we can do all that just like we would for CT scanners or MRI scanners, but this is for manufacturing. And if you have ortho bioprinter and cardiac bioprinter and cranium exophasial bioprinter and cardiology bioprinter, they're not going to have centralized quality control um, exactly. manufacturing methods. So that's another reason to centralize it. Uh, and, then, and then you have to build a team around it. So that team can be composed of uh, several different people. In our institution, we have a radiologist that does segmentation of tumors, um, congenital anomalies, abnormal osseous anomalies that say a CT technologist wouldn't be able to know. Because okay. only the radiologist or an advanced surgeon is gonna know where the margins of say a primary bone tumor are, um, which is what we do a lot of. Uh, we have CT technologists that do most of the segmentation. So uh, for cranium exophagia, I've seen dental technicians be the segmenters you know, they combine intraoral scans with cone beam CT. Whoever it is, they have to be trained appropriately. You have to have training documents and you have to prove that that person is trained to do whatever segmentation you've asked them to do. In our case, we use CT technologists and then they hand it off to the doctor who does the tumor um, and or any advanced congenital anomalies or if they just check to make sure that the CAD files are correct over the anatomic imaging. We, all, right. we, we incorporated engineers, so we have two biomedical engineers. We're hiring a third one. Okay. Uh, and they've been important in developing some of the quality control standards. They've been important in developing all the custom osteotomy guides that we create and creating systems that, in order to do that. 
We have another group called healthcare technology management, and they're the people who keep the printers running. So okay. if you have a one printer and you're a prosumer printer, you know, your local champion gets pretty good at fixing it, keeping it running, upkeep. But in essence, that person, if they're a radiologist, surgeon has other things to do. So mm -hmm. we have enough printers now um, where early, even early on, we just had one polyjet printer. We hired people to take care of them. So they put the jobs on, they take the jobs off, they're required of all the maintenance, which is more than every vendor says you should do because it, it keeps them running. Um, and they troubleshoot. So, so, you know, when we have SLS, SLA, binder jetting, polyjet printers, FDM, SLA, DLMP, all these printers that we have people that need to keep them running. And that's true at most, places that have any volume of 3D printers. They have people that are just putting jobs on, taking jobs off, and doing maintenance to keep the printers running, because um, that's a lot of work. And we have five of those people. Um, so we have like three CT technologists, we have two biomedical engineers going on three, we have five healthcare technology management, and we have a group of subspecialty radiologists. And then the surgeon's role is where a tool for them. So we're at five flights above the OR, they come up, they go in between cases while they run rounds. They tell us, I wanna cut here, where's the edge of the tumor? Give me a two millimeter, two centimeter margin. You know, they like in cranium exofacial, they make all the datum planes, they make all the cut planes. The dentists and the prosthodontists, you know, are there and they say, well, can you give me a little more of that tooth? If you're gonna take that, then I'd rather you take that tooth with it and the person who's gonna build a custom mandibular prosthesis and the teeth is there to say, oh, can you turn the fibula a little more because it'd be beneficial if the fibula were placing up so I could get my screws mm -hmm. in it. Um, so there's a lot of people um, that are there and, and each surgeon has their own um, part of the process. So we have oral maxillofacial surgeons, cranial maxillofacial surgeons, ENT surgeons, uh, plastic surgeons, thoracic surgeons, neurosurgeons, multiple different subspecialties sub of orthopedic surgery, pediatric surgery, pediatric ortho. You know, there's yeah, so it's, many it's different people. It's a huge, it's like all of, all of the specialties. Um, they're all part of yeah. the plan. They're all part of the, the planning. They're all part of the puzzle because we have expertise in radiology, anatomy, pathologic anatomy, bioengineering, 3D printing, and what they have are problems to all be right. solved. So when, they, when you combine all that into one big team, then you really get improved care yeah. instead of like one person owning something in a silo. Exactly. Fashion. So uh, at the moment, because of the COVID, uh, I presume that uh, because the supply chains were all frozen, I hope the same happened there. So I heard a lot of work went on because of that in your, uh, in your lab. So could you describe some of the work that you did? I mean, I heard a lot though. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have friends around the world because of 3D printing and uh, when Asia started to go down because of COVID and the supply chain started getting tight. I mean, we heard about it early from people in Taiwan and Hong Kong and um, Singapore. And then as it spread to Europe, we heard it from our European colleagues. So we early on, kind of in February, March, we formed a group with engineering, supply chain, um, respiratory therapy, the emergency department in our group. And because we don't want to manufacture things we don't have to, we don't want to use 3D printing for things it doesn't make sense for. Uh, and we focused on several things. One was PPE, trying to get enough uh, PPE here. How can we recycle and reuse PPE? And we have a staff of 60,000 people. So 
it's a really big organization. Um, so if you're going to reclaim N95 masks and re-sterilize them, it's a massive effort. Uh, and that's one of the things that happened. But we also, the engineering department, so we have an engineering department of 70 engineers that's separate from our lab. And we're not a university. So they're not, we're, not a, we're not attached to like the university of, you know, whatever that has an engineering department. These are engineers whose sole purpose is to help Mayo Clinic deliver the best possible care to patients. And it's been that way since its founding because we're kind of in the middle of the country in a small cornfield. And even though we've grown to a really big size, they still fulfill that role, whether it's helping make custom surgical instruments for a surgeon or make a diamond generator for deep brain stimulators. They still fulfill the role of trying to produce the best possible patient care we can deliver. So they um, took on roles like working with companies to make our own N95 substitutes. Um, you know, we can make our own N95 material. Uh, they worked to say, we need 200,000 of these T-tubes for nebulizers that we couldn't get. So we 3D printed some of them, but really we wanted to injection mold them. So we cut a mold, they have a large milling, they have all the traditional manufacturing, milling, molding, laser cutting, water jetting, uh, that's not 3D printing. So they cut a mold and could injection mold those. Did a lot of acrylic work to make these custom boxes that went around COVID patients' heads to protect the surgeons during intubation. Um, with the help of Stratasys and their partners, we made 30,000 face shields before Ford or anybody could even roll 1,000 off the line. We had 30,000 at Mayo Clinic. We invented and distributed a middle turbinate swab and we're, we're manufacturing 35,000 nasal swabs a week for Mayo Clinic. Um, so we've done a lot with additive manufacturing for uh, the hospital, for our patients, for our community, um, for the nation. We're a national hotspot for sending samples to be tested. Uh, and it's taken a whole lot of people in a big multidisciplinary effort. I mean, we have Department of Lab Medicine. By, you know, just a swab requires resin testing, uh, PCR testing, leech testing, human housekeeping gene testing, tensile strength testing, breakability testing. Does it interfere with COVID testing? Does it interfere with the, of the PCR and the machine? All that stuff had to be done and then it had to be tested on 300 COVID patients. You know, so, and that kind of stuff can happen in two months here at Mayo Clinic because we have everyone under one roof um, coming together to solve a problem, just like we would coming together to solve clinical problems. Exactly, I think because of the centralized system, it was actually possible because everything was around. That's right. Yeah. I'm sure there has been a lot of takeaways and real-time learning with Dr. Morris. I am so thankful to Dr. Morris for the time he dedicated for this show. I would like to take a break here and continue rest of the conversation with Dr. Morris in the next episode. I assume we are all on the same page and learning together. I believe you're not left behind in this journey visit our website www.surgeonsin3dprinting.com to know more. Subscribe the podcast to hear more interesting conversation with experts across the globe. We would love to connect with you for any unanswered questions. If you are still fired up for more, visit the resources section of our website and find amazing gifts for you. Hope to connect with you in the next episode. Till then. Stay safe and live with passion. Life is a work in progress. 
What matters at the end is the journey.